0: The first reading is found on page 543 and is Psalm 2, following on from Psalm 1 last week. Page 543. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The second reading is taken from Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 28, on page 1096 of the Bibles in the pews. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Heavenly Father, there is a higher throne. And it belongs to you and to you alone. You are the one enthroned in heaven. We pray that you would help us to see that truth more clearly. Open our ears to hear the words of Psalm 2. Open the eyes of our heart to see the wonder and the might of that throne. For your name'sake. Amen. Please do be seated. And... Um, We're spending our time in Psalm 2. We're continuing this little summer series in the Psalms, and uh, I had to dash to get a Bible. I recommend you open one in front of you as well. You find it helpful. I certainly will find it helpful. Uh, We've already prayed. Followers of Jesus are futures traders. Followers of Jesus are futures traders. You may have come across the idea of futures trading. It's a a role I believe is quite common in the city, in finance. And futures traders make investments which involve speculating on whether various commodities will go up in value or down in value in the future. And the key horizon for the futures trader, to bear in mind, well, it's obvious, isn't it? The clue's in the name. It's the future The key horizon for the futures trader is tomorrow, next week, next month, next decade. It is not, in fact, yesterday, for they are a futures trader. They live now in the light of the future. And in this sense, followers of Jesus are futures traders. The key horizon for us is not yesterday, last week, not even today in this sense, but it is tomorrow Indeed, next week, next month, the next 10 years. And the stock that we are interested in, the commodity, is not gold or debt or currency, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have very, very good reason to believe that his stock will increase in value exponentially in the future. And therefore, we are absolutely confident that we should invest heavily in him now. Invest in the Lord Jesus Christ now. End of verse 12. There is great blessing for all who take refuge in him now. And this psalm tells us why. Psalm 2, quite obviously, follows on from Psalm 1. You don't need to be a theologian to know that. But they fit together as a pairing and a couplet. You'll see at the beginning of Psalm 1, the psalmist's theme is blessing or true happiness. And you'll see at the end of our psalm today, this theme is the same. They're bracketed by this idea of happiness or or true blessing. And together they act as an introduction to the whole of this hymn book of Israel, the whole of the Psalter, this book of songs. And it's as if they are saying, this is how we gain true happiness. Sing these songs and mean them, and we shall find true happiness. Now, before we dive into Psalm 2, it's worth noticing how it's structured as a song. Did you notice as I read it? It's a conversation between the world, on the one hand, and the Lord, on the other hand, a conversation between those two. Now, the world and its rulers, they speak in verses 1 to 3, and the rest of the psalm consists in the Lord's threefold response. Now, normally it would be very rude indeed to eavesdrop in on a conversation, I'm sure you would agree, but the fact that this is published and was sung for many, many years means that we are invited in to eavesdrop in on a conversation which is not our own, but which is nonetheless important. And the reason it's important to eavesdrop in on this conversation between the world and between the Lord is that in the substance of the conversation, we find a great clue given away about the Lord Jesus Christ and his stock and the future and where we are wise to invest now. It's a wonderful psalm. So first of all, if you're a note taker, you'll see my headings on the back of the notice sheet I've, um, I've used it as a conversation, almost as you would read in Act 1 of a play. First, verses 1 to 3, the world. The world says this to God, we want freedom. We want freedom from God. Let me read the first three verses. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, literally his Christ. And what do they say? Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. First of all, notice who it is that is speaking. Have a look at verse 1. This is the nations speaking, and the peoples speaking. In other words, everyone other than god's people speaking everyone who was a non-israelite through the old testament that's what the word nations means and everyone in today's language who is not a follower of the lord jesus christ everyone who does not belong to his body the church that's who the nations and the peoples are now some quick maths and some quick googling suggests to me that in today's global population numbers, that is five and a half billion people. That's the nations. That's the peoples. It's a, a large people, a people impressive in number. Verses one to three. Not only impressive in number, but they're also impressive in status. Have a look at verse two. The kings of the earth and the rulers. These are not some humdrum collection of people. These are important people. These are the movers and the shakers and the policy makers of our day in verses 1 to 3. In our day, I was racking my brains to think of what kings and rulers, who they would be today. Let me tell you who I think they would be. MPs, presidents, prime ministers, chairmen of the board, media operators, BBC, ITV, Sky, TV script writers, authors of best-seller books, weekend columnists, members of school senior management teams, partners of law and accountancy firms. They are the kings and the rulers of our day, the people who mould and lead society and culture, the movers, the shakers, and the policy makers. This is the world speaking. And they've come together for one purpose and one purpose only. Did you see it at the end of verse 2? They're conspiring or literally noisily assembling and plotting and rising up. And to what end? What has brought this disparate group of people from the world of finance and education and politics together? Well, to band together against the Lord and against his Christ his anointed one. Wow. That is what's brought them together. The beginning, therefore, of this song reminds us of the illness called sin, which every human being is afflicted with. By nature, every one of us here, but for the grace of God, is deeply anti-God by dint of our personality and broken character. But it does remind us that we're heavily outnumbered if we're a Christian today, if we're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we mustn't underestimate how tough it is to live as a minority day in, day out. 5.5 billion people saying we want freedom from God. And we're in a minority there. We often talk about peer pressure, don't we? Now, if I say those words, you may think immediately of a teenager, But of course, that is a lie, isn't it, to say that peer pressure only affects teens. It affects every one of us, whatever season of life we're in. Is that not true? Because I want to fit in. That's why sometimes I don't like wearing these robes. And don't you want to fit in as well? And we want to fit in because we love that feeling of belonging, being one of the gang, that feeling of camaraderie and the team, and being welcomed in warmly. He's one of us, she's one of us. And verses 1 to 3 remind us that, for the Christian, we can never belong truly in this world. We can never give in to peer pressure because the majority, the nations and and the peoples, well, they hate our God. 5.5 billion of them. We cannot give in to peer pressure and live all out for the Lord. Not only is the world against God, but we're told why. Verse 3, I think there are two tragic misunderstandings that lie at the heart of their rebellion. Let us break the Lord's chains and throw off their shackles. The first misunderstanding, see if you think I'm right with this, is that they think God is a jailer. They think God offers cruel constraint to them and this is sown very much into the fabric of our day wouldn't you agree ever since the enlightenment so called it's come to be seen that the fundamental human right of every human being is something called freedom what does freedom mean well freedom our culture would say means the right to be self-determining to follow our own dreams and desires the right to be Autonomous, as we say. The word autonomous literally means self-ruling, autonomous. That's what our culture says freedom means. And our culture says it's a fundamental human right. If you compromise my freedom, then you compromise my humanity. And therefore, our culture has become very suspicious of authority structures, hasn't it? All sorts of authority structures. see that in school, but everywhere. Now, God, if he is anything and anyone, is an authority, is he not? And so our culture today rails against God because any authority over me is a a travesty of my fundamental human right. I'm free. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what to believe. I'm free. I'm a human being. And so our world hates God along with his authority. It thinks he's a jailer. But the Bible doesn't understand freedom in that autonomous sense. Freedom in the Bible, if you read it carefully, is to follow God's ways. To be constrained by God's loving ways. In fact, that is the free and the best way to live. The sad thing, of course, is that freedom can never mean self-ruling. If you think about it just for a minute, it can never mean self-ruling freedom. Think about the addict. Imagine her, the heroin addict, withered away, uh, pin marks in her uh, arm. And she says, leave me alone, I'm free. Let me live how I want to live. And we reply to her, no, I'm afraid freedom doesn't look like that. Freedom looks like this, and we take the needle away from her. Freedom looks like me coming into her world and constraining her, saying, no, don't do that. You're hurting yourself. And in the same way, the God of the universe offers his loving constraint, takes the needle away from us of our addictions that are bad for us, and gives us the freedom of serving him. And so the tragedy of verse 3 is that the world is rejecting the very God who gives them freedom by his rules and his laws and his ways. So that's the first misunderstanding at the heart of their rebellion, I think. The second comes to light when the Lord responds You'll see my second heading, verses 4 to 6. The Lord, there's a stage direction here for him. He laughs. And then he says, I've chosen my king. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. I wonder, how did you expect the Lord to respond to their outrageous rebellion of verses 1 to 3? Perhaps we envisaged a flash of worry across his face. I hadn't planned for this. Perhaps a quick scrambling of his Cobra cabinet emergency meeting. At least a, a bit of sweat on his brow, wouldn't you have thought? I mean, these are 5.5 billion important people rebelling. But no, he laughs. And it's not a cruel or a maniacal laugh of the James Bond baddie. It's just a laugh because it's funny. Verses 1 to 3 are hilarious to God. They are a joke to God. He says, pull the other one, world. That was a good joke. I like that. Why does he laugh? Well, did you notice the Lord's postal address in verse 4 compared to the kings of verse 2? God is the one enthroned in heaven. The kings are merely the kings of the earth. Notice two contrasts. First location, God in heaven, the kings on the earth. A different order of magnitude and power. Notice secondly, a difference of quantity. There are many, many kings, but there is one Lord. And you put the two together and you find the point is this, that there is only one God. He's the only one in heaven. He's not bothered by this collection of angry kings. So their second misunderstanding, I think, is that they are able to overthrow God. As you know, Katie and I have been on uh, camp uh, last week with um, this young man here as well, and a few others from church. Cole and I had a good time. But a few days ago on camp, I was doing something and I felt a little itching on my leg. And I looked down, and to my mild interest and amusement, I saw an ant was on my toe. And then another ant, and another. I must have been standing near their nest, and they, they didn't like that. And do you know what I did next? I didn't freak out, I didn't worry, I didn't call Katie. I just wiped them off. Now, for those ants, that would have been a big event in their day. They had declared war on a giant, on me. Big. But for me, I I barely remembered it. It's amazing. I remembered it to write it in this sermon. I mean, it was just an ant on my toe. Because there was a difference in the order of magnitude and power there. Almost laughable that the ants thought they could declare war and win with me, wasn't it? And our culture struggles to understand that God is of a higher magnitude than us increasingly our culture persuades itself that all that we see in the world and can touch and feel and smell is all that there is in the world. And since we as human beings basically rule all that we can see and feel and touch and smell in the world, then surely we're the boss. And so when I start to talk about someone called God, it would be a natural assumption for most people to think, oh, well, he's probably similar to me. We're probably equals. I mean, after all, humanity has invented the iPhone 6 and the cure for tuberculosis. We've done a lot of amazing things. We've gone to space. So why wouldn't we be able to break free of God's shackles? That's the thinking of the world. But God laughs as the ant declares war on the human. And then God replies, I've chosen my king. Verse 6, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And this is an emphatic rebuke to the rulers and the kings because no king can stand in opposition to another king without realizing they're declaring outright war. And in verse 6, God is saying, do you realize, kings, that you are now in deep, deep trouble with the king, capitalized, underlined, with the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you notice where this king is installed, the Lord Jesus? On Zion, my holy mountain. It was the seat of the Davidic kings where they ruled from. It was Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And when I thought about this verse, when I was preparing this, I was really quite surprised. And I'll tell you why I was surprised. I was surprised because it was really quite an unimpressive response to these kings, I think. Imagine you're there as an Israelite singing this psalm, 5.5 billion rulers and important people rebelling against your God, and you want your God to reply with a knockdown blow, don't you? You want him really to knock them out, knock them flying. You want him to respond and say, no, 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 do you realize I'm the king of the world? I am your king, whether you recognize it or not. I'm the king of kings and the lord of lords. I long for that to be the response here in this psalm, but it's not. The response is slightly unimpressive, I think. The response in verse 6, I've installed my king on Zion. He's the king of Jerusalem. Oh, come on. Couldn't you have done better than that? I thought he was the king of the world, of the universe. Let's talk big. Let's upscale this. Zion and Jerusalem are pictures of the New Testament church. And... I wish that Jesus ruled more than just the church now, don't you? It just seems somehow so unimpressive to say that Jesus Christ is ruling over his church only. I wish he ruled over more. When the whole non-Christian world is rebelling against my God, I want to be able to say that Christ is bigger than that, ruling over more than that, but this psalm says he's only ruling over Zion or over the church. I want to say that he's in charge of everything and everyone, but I can't because he isn't yet. He isn't ruling over everyone and everything yet, but one day he will. It's my third point in this conversation. Verses 7 to 9, the Lord says, my king will rule everybody one day. He'll rule everybody one day. The narrator of the psalm changes in verse seven, and the king himself, I think, begins to speak, and he lets him in, us in on a secret conversation God had, God his Father had with him. This is Jesus speaking to us. And the meat of it is in verses eight to nine. "God the Father says to King Jesus, "Ask of me, my son, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession." You'll break or you'll literally rule them with a rod or scepter of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. So it turns out that even though Jesus Christ only rules his church now, one day he will rule everyone and everything. Because God the Father will give them to him. Will you imagine in your mind's eye for a moment, the son of a managing director... Of a big firm in the city. Can you see him? At present, this son is small fry. He doesn't rule very much. He has a very small kingdom. In fact, his kingdom is only his bedroom. That's the only bit of real estate he has, and even that is owned by mum and dad. He's a small ruler, but one day his father will make him a big ruler one day his father will increase his kingdom one day his father will transfer his managing directorship to his son's name and bring him his son alongside him at the board table one day his son's kingdom will expand from the bedroom to the boardroom and it'll be a big change and so it is with king christ the son at present he rules only over the church In a sense, he's a small ruler now. But one day, his rule will extend to the boardroom of the universe, everyone and everything. Did you notice the language of nations and earth repeated in verse 8? We had them in verses 1 to 2. One day, Jesus will rule over exactly the same nations who rebelled against him. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever find it hard, not only to sing the hymns in church, but also to believe them? Jesus, the name high over all? Really? Tell out my soul the greatness of his might, powers and dominions lay their glory by? Really? Sometimes I find there's a bit of disjuncture or a disconnect. We sing these amazing truths about Jesus, the King here, but we walk out of the front door or the side door today, and we walk into a world that doesn't recognize those truths. And I begin to think, is Jesus really the name high overall? Is he really a king worth following? If he's meant to be ruling the whole earth and the whole world now, then he's doing a really rather pathetic job. And we could tell him that from our own personal experience, even from the news. A bit of a disconnect between the songs we sing and the outside. And Psalm 2 here is saying that that disjuncture is not a mistake. Jesus is not pretending he's king over the whole world now. He's king over the church now, his people Now, but one day he will rule everything and everyone. And as we sing these hymns in church, we are looking forward to that day. I don't know about you, maybe you struggle with Jesus appearing to be a small ruler. Maybe you feel as if the prayers you've prayed for your family haven't been answered. You can't help but notice that the Sunday sports clubs you take your children to are bigger than church. You read BBC News and you see that the church is given bad press. You look around here and beloved family, but we're quite small in number. And there's this nagging doubt in all of our Christian discipleship that slowly creeps in. Am I backing the wrong king? Is Jesus a pathetic king who talks a big game? And so even as we come to church, read our Bibles, even share our faith, there's this nagging doubt Is Jesus the right king to back? Wouldn't I be better off becoming one of the kings of the nations, of the peoples, becoming great in my own right? But no, listen to what the Lord says. My king will rule everybody one day. We said it earlier, followers of Jesus are futures traders. The horizon we are interested in is not now or yesterday, but tomorrow. A month, ten years' time because we have more reason than anything to believe that Jesus Christ the King, that his stock will rise. And so we invest heavily in him now. So finally, my king will rule everybody one day, so the Lord says, be wise and take refuge in him. This is verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with trembling Serve the Lord with fear, sorry, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It makes sense, doesn't it, to make our allegiance with the one who will one day rule everything? It's wisdom. Verse twelve I think is a picture of Jesus' throne room. And it will be glorious. And of a rebel king shuffling into his throne room of grace, kneeling before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, and kissing his signet ring. It's a picture of loving allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. The king, as he comes in, doesn't feel comfortable, he doesn't saunter. He's not relaxed. Do you see this with trembling and with fear? Because Jesus is the king of kings. And yet he knows the place of refuge is only with this ruler of everything, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're back to the son of the managing director. How will the other members of the board treat the son? Well, I mean, if they are short-sighted, they would ignore him as an insignificant child. They'd get him to do the tea run, do the boring photocopying, make fun of him. But if they have even an ounce of long-sightedness, they would treat him with real respect, would they not? For one day, this son will be their managing director. One day, he will sit at the head of the board table. And so don't they welcome him in, serve him, love him? Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And I just wonder whether that's a word in season to somebody here. It is so easy to grow complacent towards Christ. I say that to myself. We sing hymns celebrating his unbounded love for us. But the end of this psalm reminds us that there's real fear and trembling to be had in his presence. He's not someone we can saunter towards not someone who we can be lax with for he is the king of kings and so it may be a word in season for us that he he can look weak now the son of the managing director but one day he'll sit at the board table of the universe it's just a glance to the future one day he'll rule everything let me read that final verse as we close kiss the son lest he be angry and we'd be destroyed in our way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sorry for the way in which sometimes we treat your son as a pathetic king. We doubt whether he's the right king to follow. We confess that we find it hard to live in a world where we are outnumbered by people who are anti-God. And we pray that you'd help us to have an eye to the future, to see that the stock of Jesus Christ the King will rise. Pray that you'd help us to invest heavily in him now, to find our refuge in him now. We thank you for his death on the cross, the forgiveness he gives us as we kiss his signet ring. For your name's sake, amen.